What is up, bosses? Before we kick off this episode, I want to tell you about our brand new sponsor, and I'm really happy that they are on Team iLab because it's a platform that Johnny, Sam, and myself have all personally invested in. I'm talking about Fundrise. They make investing in private real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. I'm going to tell you all about them during the break, but if you want to check it out right now, just head over to Fundrise.com com slash like a boss that's f-u-n-d-r-i-s-c dot com slash like a boss funrise.com slash like a boss let's kick off this episode like i said i'll tell you more during the break welcome to the invest like a boss podcast i'm sam marks and i'm johnny fd we're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. What is up, bosses? It is episode 179 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. My name is Derek Spartz. I am currently at home in Venice Beach, soon to be in New Orleans this weekend. Can't wait. It's my first time there. And I believe Sam has left Thailand. Where are you at, Sam Marks? Sorry, listeners, if I don't have quite as much energy as Big D. I just completed <laughs> a journey from Thailand to South Carolina. For the record, it is about as far in the world as you can travel by plane. Um, so so <laughs> it's I been a journey. Sound pretty it, good, Sam. We were going to do this oh, episode yesterday, you. like yeah. an hour after your flight, and that could have been a disaster. <laughs> Yeah, like two hours before my flight. I'm like, yeah, Derek, let's do it tomorrow. Uh, right when I get off the plane, I'll head home. I'll, you know, of course, overestimating my ability and, and desire to jump on and, and do it. But uh, yeah, to kick off the end, when I landed in Atlanta, there was no rental cars available. So I had to take a train uh, about an hour and a half. And then I had to get my dad to come drive an hour and a half to meet me and then head back. It's just like, that's just how you got to kick off like a 30 hour <laughs> so I, i've been hearing woo. nightmare stories about rental cars in hawaii a rental car is going over 500 bucks a day people are actually renting u-haul trucks as their rental car because they're Dude, cheaper that's exactly what happened in atlanta like there there was rental cars but it was going to be like 550 dollars a day and i'm like so i actually told Derek, i'm like i'm just going to take an uber three hours from atlanta airport to my house um and then that was going to be like $400. My dad's just like, just take the train. It's, it's the world <laughs> shit is train. It's called Marta. <laughs> that just sounds awful. <laughs> uh, anyways. Um, so it's a good day to, it's a good day to knock out this episode before my jet lag kicks in because it's brutal uh, going that far as anyone knows. Um, but yeah, anyways, excited, excited to have this episode talk about startups, not something that we, we talk about that often, but uh, it's getting increasingly interesting to me because I'm starting to have some success doing it and uh, wanted to share some of that with everybody listening. Yeah, I agree. Um, actually, from a personal standpoint, I want to learn more about this as well, because I think I've mentioned before, uh, I've worked as a contractor for some startups in the past and I felt like I've got burned from the whole startup world where I'm just not super into it because there was many a weeks where I was like, I don't know if I'm getting paid and I'm probably not getting paid or if I am yeah. getting paid, it's going to be months down the road before I see anything from this. So it's kind of left a bad taste in my mouth from the standpoint of working for a startup. So I think that's why I've avoided investing in a startup, but you've had, I think three exits now this year already, right? 
That's right. Yeah. Um, and actually they've all been, two of them been partial exits and one of them has been a full exit. Um, but to your story about working for a startup, it actually, any, any being, being part of a startup in any capacity, you know, most people think of it as being a founder, but being an investor and being an employee, it's risky for everybody. When you're an employee for a startup, there's risk involved as well. So maybe some of this episode will, will kind of highlight uh, some of those risks and also some of the ways that you might be able to, um, you know, to take advantage of, of what can be a very lucrative opportunity. Yeah. I think that, I think it's, it's a bigger risk, but bigger reward situation and you've been doing really well lately. So we want to share with other bosses who are interested in looking at startups, you know, what kind of, what kind of investments does Sam look for in a startup? How much is he investing? Um, and we'll also go over, Sam's got some uh, lessons learned. I think that, uh, you know, everyone can take something away from. We'll go over uh, those as well. I think he's got eight lessons to learn about startups. Yeah, man. So let's kick it off. I, I tried to think about these from a, you know, from a layman's point of view. Like if I hadn't ever invested in a startup, what would I go back and tell myself? Because investing in startups can be extremely complicated. And there's also a lot of luck involved. Let's be honest. You can throw darts at a board and somebody's going to get lucky. You know, there a lot of people invested in Uber that were just around the founder uh, and knew nothing about the company and nothing about how, you know, how that whole vision was going to play out and made millions and millions and millions of dollars. So there is always an element of luck involved, but if you do the things right and do the right due diligence. I think, uh, I think you can definitely beat the house odds, which are kind of like one in one in 10 are going to make money. But um, Derek, why don't you ask any questions that you have just about getting started or my startup portfolio? And then we'll, we'll, we'll parlay that into kind of some of the lessons that I've learned. Sure. So I hope you didn't throw darts at a dartboard because if you did, you're a <laughs> Uh, you should start throwing some darts for me. Um, uh, what do you What do you look for uh, in these investments? In what investment you've you've mentioned some of your startups casually? I don't think we know the full picture. Can you just tell us the some of the categories that you're invested in and how you came to those categories and what interested you in them? Yeah, for sure. So you'll you'll see this is pretty broad. Um, they range. So I'm in eight different startup investments. You could call them private investments because they're not all necessarily startups. Like for instance, I'm invested in a brewery in Australia called Black Ops. A lot of people wouldn't classify that as a startup because it's not necessarily tech oriented. Yeah. Uh, I think everyone it, thinks it, tech when they think startup, but you know, it yeah. could be anything really. Yeah. It's, it's fuzzy and it's blurry, but, um, but I consider, I consider Black Ops a startup because, you know, they started in their garage. They were brewing beer in their garage and now they became a, a large brewery. But at one point they were certainly a startup, but in the other investments, the other seven, they range in categories, but they all have a, a pretty heavy tech element. Uh, one is, is uh, HR tech, human resources tech, and that's Glintz. They're out of Singapore. I'm in a food delivery uh, technology company. It's uh, uh, driver logistics for food delivery. That's out of Tampa, Florida. I'm in a healthcare tech company called Patient. That's also based in the U.S. There is a artificial intelligence company that creates AI for sales productivity. They're based in Spain. Um, there's my own company that's called Coworker. That's a marketplace, um, but that's a startup, and I'm also also the the main investor in it. Um, and then then there's a travel app that's called Explorist. And like, you know, the, it runs the gamut, right? But ultimately all these companies that I've invested in, I either seeked out 
or was a founder or somebody that I knew that was really smart. And I said, next time you do something, please let me know. Oh, I forgot one more. There's actually nine. There's one called Winner Winner, which is my most recent investment. And that's an online uh, an online arcade, actually, that's doing really well. Um, so, so yeah, so all these companies are companies either I seeked out or or are founders that I knew from before. And I said, I knew they're smart. And I said, if you guys ever do anything again, you know, please give me a call. Maybe, you know, I want to be the first person you talk to. So three of those, three of the companies I invested in happened just like that. It was somebody smart that I ran into either I'd done business with them before, or I would seen them operate a business, uh, whether they were in management at that company or they're the founder. And I said, Hey, you know, you seem great to work with you're really smart. If you ever start a company, call me. So three of these companies, that I invested in happened just like that. And all three of these companies, I was the first investor. So I, I wrote the first check to start that to start that company. Would you say that even if it's a category you don't understand, but you fully trust this person to run a great company, is it more important to have the, the management in place over what the company actually does? It, uh, that depends a lot. But if in these cases where I was actually I was betting purely on the founder because I knew them before it made less of a, a difference on what they were starting. As long as I had a general grasp of it, which I did anything technology sure. wise, unless it's insane, uh, Neuralink stuff, I, I can get some type of grasp. I can at least understand the business plan. I can understand what the vision is. Um, but if I couldn't understand what the vision was, and I had no idea how this is going to scale, or what market they're going to go after, how the consumer or the business is going to be interested in a service, then yeah, it would, it would be less appealing. Now, if I didn't know the founder, then I have to have a really, really good idea of the business and how it's going to work. Uh, so there's, you have to weigh different variables, of course. The other companies um, that I didn't know the founder, they were companies I actually seeked out. So these were companies that there was a category that I was interested in or a region like Singapore that I was interested in. And I actually went to that area or I looked for businesses that were doing well in, in that area. Good example is Explorers is a travel app. I had an idea that was called Million Dollar Photo where I wanted to you know, all these photos that you see, um, like on Instagram, you're like, where is that? Where's that photo? I wanted to create an app where like all those photos were, like these amazing photos were, and you could actually like unlock the exact GPS of where that photo was taken at what time it was taken, et cetera. And so I started coming up with this idea to build this business and I'm like, Oh, maybe I should look for competitors. And I found this company called Explorist and it was right at the perfect stage of where I like to invest. And ended up um, getting in contact with the founder and, and, you know, meeting them and making an investment that way. So none of these were actually through like cold, you know, email pitches or anything. These are, these are companies or founders that I sought out or I'd done business with uh, before. So that's, I don't necessarily look for an industry. I just look for, for good opportunities or, or something special, you know, uh, after I'd sold my company SkySig, I thought that I, I was spending a lot of time in China and I just saw Asia rising, rising, rising. But I also saw a lack of competent uh, founders and VCs. Like there just wasn't the sharks. There was, wasn't the capital that were going into startups, but you had this massive emerging middle-class and these growing economies uh, and the technology just wasn't there yet. But if you spent any time in the West, you knew exactly what was going to happen in the East. So I just went there where I felt I had a competitive advantage and, and started looking for opportunities there. Uh, and that's how I ended up investing in Glintz. And it's actually also how I ended up investing in Black Ops, uh, the brewery in Australia, because the US brewery market was on absolute fire 
And I looked at Australia and like growing up in America, you always think Australia is like the biggest beer drinking country in the world. Right. Yeah. Like we're bombarded with like Foster's. <laughs> Which Australian I think they don't even drink, drink Foster's there. Right. <laughs> they don't. I don't even think it's sold anymore. <laughs> oh, but, but I was like, I was looking at the Australian beer market. I'm like, there's very few breweries. Like it's inevitable what's going to happen. Like craft beer is going to take over this market. So when I saw the opportunity with Black Ops, I'm like, that's that's a home run. And that one's turned out really well. So, so I think so, that yeah, brings me that background. I think that brings me to a question. Um, you and Johnny did an episode just recently, uh, iLab 173 on international diversification. So do you take that the same approach to spreading your money throughout the world in your startups? Because you said you have nine and I think only a couple are based in the U.S., correct? Can you kind of break down where they're all located? Yeah, definitely. I mean, some of this also was the lifestyle decisions. So I invested in places that I like to go anywhere. And there's there's tax benefits to doing that. You know, if I fly to Australia and my primary purpose is go down and see the brewery, you know, I can write off a lot of that travel expense. Uh, but, but absolutely... In, International diversification is high, high on my list. Um, I try to be 50% US, 50% international, not just in index funds, but in everything. And my startup investments are a key place that I get that diversification. But in terms of locations, yeah, we've got um, Glintz is based out of Singapore. Black Ops is in Australia. Um, the, the healthcare company and the food delivery company are both in the US. The AI company is in Spain. Um, the travel app Explorers is in the U.S. and then my company is kind of global. So there you go. And there's about 50-50 right there. Awesome. Sounds good. So let's say you found a startup you liked. Um, we can use any of them, for example. What in your head, what is the dollar amount that you're, you know, you're max willing to spend? Or is it usually determined by the company? Do they suggest a number first or do you just have a number in mind? You know, I'm always thinking my base check is around 50k for a startup investment um and this will be part of the takeaways coming up but but i'll always be thinking that whatever i'm going to invest i'm probably going to have to invest more to keep that company going so i would say right now my average investments right around a hundred thousand maybe just just over a hundred thousand uh, but the the first check is almost always fifty thousand and then and then uh, in a lot of cases i'll add on capital uh in in subsequent rounds so that brings me to a question i guess when i guess i love the show shark tank you know it's fun i know it's not 100 percent real exactly what happens but that's usually a number determined by you know the person who pitches the company and then the sharks will come back with whatever their number is does it yeah. kind of work the same where they're coming to you and say hey i want you know if you give me fifty thousand, you get five percent or whatever it may be um, how does kind of that, I guess I'm just trying to use a situation that everybody can relate to. Cause you know, a lot of people have seen that show. How, uh, how close to real life is that interaction kind of happening in the startups that you've dealt with? You know, in most cases, these companies are trying to achieve a fundraising goal, uh, at some point. Now, most of my investments are, are what would be considered pre-seed levels or seed levels. That means these companies are just getting going. They might not even have anything going yet. Like they might not even have a, a base website or an app. They might just have a concept that's written down on paper with a small <laughs> pitch deck and a business, you know, some type of business model. Um, but in most cases they're, let's just say they have a very basic website. They've got a little bit of traffic and they've, they're starting to work on raising money so that they can prove uh, the economic concept. 
So in, let's just say in most cases, they're trying to raise somewhere between 250000 and $600,000 for this pre-seed or seed round. And it'll all just be playing a part of that. Uh, and then if, if they're able to, to raise that much money, then my money will go in as well. So I'll just be you know, maybe one investor of five in, in one of these original rounds. Gotcha. So I think with that, we're going to go over eight things that Sam has learned from startup investing. If you're ready to kick off that list, Sam. Yeah, sure. So just for the record, anyone that knows uh, or has been listening to the show for a while, I'm not a expert uh, startup investor, but I have invested now in nine startups over the last eight years. And I've learned a lot from doing that. And just in the last six months, we've had three exits, which is wild considering the COVID year that we've just gone through. But actually, COVID's been pretty helpful for a lot of startups in different ways. Of course, some have gotten hurt badly, but um, a lot of ones that have been agile enough have been able to take advantage of the different types of uh, you know, momentum and uh, adversity that's, that's happened through COVID. And so three of the startups that I've been invested in have been able to exit. And in some cases, those were partial exits. But I guess the, the most important thing is that through these exits, I'm now quote unquote in the money. So of all my, my startup investing, uh, what I've put out in principle, I've now made back through these three exits. So at this point, I'm playing with house money. Um, so assuming that even one or two or three of these, these other companies do well, I should have a pretty good return on the entire portfolio. And so far, touch wood, none of them look like they're failing. So overall, I'm, I'm, I'm quite happy. And I think this will be a, a very... Um, It'll be a very lucrative outcome for for this entire portfolio. So with that, I kind of stepped back and looked at, you know, what could I share from this experience to help people um, in their own ventures, whether they're the entrepreneur and founder, but but certainly as uh, startup investors, because I think this will start to sneak more and more into people's portfolio. When I talk about the check size that I write, a lot of people might say that that's, that's out of reach or it's too high risk for that type of money. But actually that's more of a traditional way to invest in startups. Now through crowdfunding platforms, you know, Johnny's invested as little as I think $500 uh, in startups. And in fact, Black Hops, uh, the brewery I'm invested in, they just did a crowdfunding campaign and I invested $250 just just to have fun in that round and be part of that round. Um, but there's, there are increasing ways that you can get access to startup investing uh, at, at different stages and, and with just a small amount of money. So I think this yeah. can be helpful for everyone. Cool. Yeah. So just the first clear, one, you know, you don't, you don't need $50,000 to invest. We can, you can go, you know, we, there's room for any kind of any boss level here. I wonder what Johnny's $500 startup uh, investment. Wasn't it like a beat company? Yeah, he hasn't mentioned it in a really long time. <laughs> That's not a good sign, but we'll Johnny likes up. to talk about his wins a lot. <laughs> That's why we got you, Sam, to balance it out. But you're, this is your wins episode here, though. So it's your time to yeah. brag, but also teach everybody about startups. Yeah, let's yeah, let's yeah. talk about number one right away, which I think is kind of contradictory because you've had some really good luck lately. But um, so your first point, number one, Companies take a long time to build and exit, and it, it could expect up to ten years. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, and this this was this was shocking to me once getting involved because my first investment goes back to 2013, I think, so almost what eight years ago. And 
but the but the company that I started in 2009, we exited in 2013, so just three and a half years, and we scaled that company to to a nine figure exit. So I was I was under the illusion that it was rather easy to build, scale a company, and exit within three years, but that's just not that practical in in reality. So what I've gained through this experience of investing in these nine is that it takes much much longer. Uh, in, in terms of exiting the company. Yeah, you can scale the, the businesses and a lot of times quicker than that, but in most cases, it's gonna take longer. So you need to have you need to have the right frame of mind when investing in these, that they're not, there's very little liquidity and it takes time to develop these companies. It takes time to build something that's high quality and valuable. However, as a caveat to that, the good news is that just because it might take eight, 10 years for these companies to grow and to scale and to exit doesn't mean that your investment has to wait that long. And that fact has given me so much more confidence in investing in startups because just in the last six months, I've had two companies that I invested in in the early rounds that are not making an exit, but rather they're raising more money. And what happens when they're raising more money in these two cases is that the new investors came in and said, hey, we would like to also get rid of some of the early shareholders, maybe and buy their shares out. Could you ask some of those early shareholders if they'd be willing to do that? Uh, and because- At I a higher valuation, early, ideally. At a higher, right? That's right, that's right. So because I was an early investor and my shares had appreciated uh, quite considerably based on the new, uh, the, the new, uh, evalu- new valuation of the company on the new fundraising round, they came to me and said, hey, your, your shares have appreciated you know, 4X, 5X. Would you be willing to, to sell some of those to the new investor? Um, and in both cases, I said, yes. And so even though the company's still growing and hasn't made a full exit, I was able to exit my shares. And in both cases, it was, it was around four to five times um, what, what I got in at. And the, so the beauty in, bo- in both of those are I, I made significant money. I didn't have to wait for the company to exit fully. And I still own shares in that company. So if the company continues to grow, uh, I, get, I continue to be able to participate in the upside. But I've gotten, I've gotten the risk off of those investments. Very cool. So let's talk about uh, kind of related to that. Number two on your list is startups require more money. That initial investment is not the last investment. Um, you got a term you call follow on capital. Uh, follow on capital. What is that? So this is actually a part of my experience too, as a founder is when you go out and you raise money, um, a lot of times you're raising enough money to get to the next milestone where you think you're going to go out and raise more money. But what inevitably happens is it takes longer and it takes more capital to develop what you need. Now, when, you, when you've already got investors, the easiest thing to do to raise more money is to go out to those same investors and say, hey, we need an extra X. And if you guys can do that, we can make things really simple and really quick and we can move on. If I have to st- go out and put it together a new pitch deck and start going out and raising new money from new investors, it could take long. Now, that, that there's exceptions to this. If the company's growing exceptionally fast and making headlines and stuff, you're going to have investors coming at you from everywhere. It's an easy but if the sell. company's yeah. struggling, yeah, if it's struggling or it's going sideways or COVID happens, and, you know, there's a million different reasons why you might need to get additional runway or additional survival capital. And the easiest way to do that is through your existing investors. If you have to go out and start pitching when your company's not doing that well, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and it's gonna 
detract you from the business. That makes so, sense. I mean, you can go out to an investor that already knows your company really well, and it could be just as simple as a quick phone call to get that money. That's right. And on, on the same token, there's nothing more frustrating than being a founder, working your ass off, maybe not even taking a paycheck. And when you know the company should be doing, you know, you know just needs a little bit more to get to get through the next whatever six months and you go out to all your existing investors and you can't get them to pony up another you know additional capital it's really frustrating it's disheartening like it takes sure, it, it, it takes might your make soul you out think of the that, business it might make you think that you know that maybe they didn't believe in the business in the first place that's right now if the company's purely like just not doing well and like doesn't have the right management and the business plan's a mess and there's no traction, then of course, in, as an investor, you'd say, look, I'm not doing this out of the goodness of my heart. Like, sure. I don't want to make that investment. But if all things are right, the easiest thing to do is just go back to the same investors and get money. So what, through this experience as a, as a founder in that same position, but also in almost all these companies that I've invested in, it's been the same case where inevitably they're going to hit a hurdle. They're going to hit a bad bad point in time where they need extra capital. Um, and in most cases, I've been able to invest in those in those difficult rounds. Uh, it's not always the same size. Sometimes it's, you know, if I invest initially 50 grand, maybe it's 10 grand on this next time. They just need to get a little bit more to get together for a couple more months. But in all these cases, I'm usually investing, whatever I'm investing initially, I'm also thinking I'm going to invest at least two to three X over the next few years. And that, that was just is, going to be my initial question. Yeah. How much, mm-hmm. how much more should you expect from these investments beyond your uh, initial investment? Yeah, I, I would say two to three X. And in some cases I've done four or five X in some cases, it's just, you know, I've, I've only put in the original check, but I would go into it thinking, okay, whatever they they need now, you have to assume they're going to hit a tough patch uh, and they're going to need additional money, and you want to be there for them when that happens, assuming they're trying hard and things, and you still believe in the company. But also, in some of these cases, the company is doing very well, and you also want to participate in it. Like uh, Black Ops and Glints are two really good examples where I've invested in every single round that they've done, not necessarily because they were struggling, but actually because they're thriving. And I want to I want to continue to invest and, and participate. So, rule number awesome. two, or, or or the takeaway number two, is that whatever you invest, don't expect that investment to get the company to the end goal. They're going to need more money. And that money's either got to come from the original investors, or you're going to have to let that founder go out and find new investors, which can take a lot of time and resources and also be quite disheartening. Perfect. I think that that scoots us right into number three, where you know, you're putting more money into the company. So you say uh, rule number three is expect big dilution into your investment. Can you explain that? Dilution. That's right. So dilution is as you would expect it. Let's think of share dilution or value dilution. So if you invest $100,000 at a million dollar valuation, just for easy numbers, you own 10% of that company. Now, if the valuation of that company goes to 10 million, how much are your shares worth, Derek? Oh my God, you're making me do math today. (laughs) One one hundredth of what you had. You invest $100,000 Oh, I thought you said ten thousand to a million. I'm sorry. Right. I'm obviously you invest not hundred thousand at a million or at a million dollar valuation. You own ten percent of the 10%. company, and your and your shares are worth a hundred thousand. Now, if the value increases ten times to ten million, how much your share is worth? You're down to one <laughs> percent. 
No, your what? shares, your shares you are had... worth, not worth a million dollars, right? Because the valuation a... went from a million to ten million. Okay. And you still own ten percent. But it's actually, the weekend when we're recording. That's for the record. <laughs> but actually, because I had to answer that question for you, I didn't get to say what I, what I meant to say, which is it depends on the dilution, right? Now, dilution happens when more shares are created generally, and more shares can be created usually through fundraising events, but there's also something that is less noticeable that happens in every single startup. And that is the creation of employee stock option pools to incentivize staff and founders. And sometimes these can get really out of hand, especially in the event where let's say there's two founders and they both own you know, 40% of the business. And one of that, those founders are gone now. They just, they left and they still own 40%. You have to do these crazy mechanisms to, to recapitalize the company. And um, you ultimately have to figure out ways to dilute their shareholding, which often dilutes the shareholding of everybody else. But what happens uh, in most, most of the startups uh, that I'm investing in, not all of them, but most is you get a lot of dilution that you don't expect. So it's not just okay, we had fundraising round one, now we're doing fundraising round two. But what they'll do in that fundraising round two is they'll also be like, and we're also going to expand the employee stock option pool by 10%. And then you get into later rounds and they'll be like, okay, the, sh- the founders are now only owners, uh, only owning 12% of the company. Well, we want to re-incentivize them. So we want to get them up to 20% each. So we're going <laughs> to expand the, the option See, this is this is where I'm confused, 50%. Sam. And this is, this yeah. is why the math doesn't make sense to me. If mm-hmm. I invest in a company and let's say I, I get 10% of the company, why... Am I not still entitled to 10% of the company after these rounds? I invested into this percentage of the company. Why am I all of a sudden getting less? That's that's I think that's the biggest thing that confuses me about this. Yeah. And it's not just it's not just startups, it's like all companies. I mean, public companies do this all the time. They issue new shares of the company and sell it to raise capital. So whenever you're gonna go out and raise capital, you either are doing it for equity or you're doing it for debt. And if you're doing it for equity, it means you have to sell shares of that company. And there's only two ways to sell shares of that company to to new uh, investor to get new capital in. You can either sell the shares that are already existing in the company, which means some shareholder has to sell those shares. Uh, but then that money is often going to that shareholder, not to the company. So what typically happens is a startup will say, hey, we need to raise another million dollars. We have a new investor. So we're going to create more shares in the company and we're going to sell those new shares of the company to the investor. And then that money is going to go into the company to capitalize the company. See, in my head, I does, think of it as, let's say mm-hmm. I want to release 10,000 new shares in this company and you own 10%. Shouldn't a thousand of those new shares come back to me? No. Only if you're investing in the company would they would in they the come new to round. You. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, you would dilute. So the dilution means that your X amount of shares is now just part of a bigger pool. It's not part of the same original pool that you invested in. It's part of a bigger pool. Now, you as an investor will most likely have a vote to say, I agree with this or I don't agree. Um, but fundraising events are usually a good thing for a company. It's not the goal, but it's, it's usually a good thing for the company. It means that they're able to, you know, to continue to grow and, and add value, hopefully. Um, but dilution can be sneaky. It's, it's usually not like in an example of I'm in a company that I invested at a million dollar valuation and their valuation valuation is now, uh, over 50 million. So you would expect off on just piece of paper, you would think, well, that means your shares are up 50 times. So let's say I invested $100,000. If it's up 50 times, you know, my 
my shares could be worth five million. But there's just so, there's so much dilution in the different fundraising rounds getting up to that point, but also just as as much dilution in the the, the frequent and regular expansion of the uh, employee stock option pool, which is is important part of of startups. You need an employee stock option pool to incentivize. Uh, instead of its employees and investors and founders to continue to, to operate that business. So expect dilution. If you really want to look into the details, make sure you read the fundraising uh, papers because sometimes it, they're not that clear about what they're doing and it'll sneak up on you, but expect dilution. That's so would, three. A, would a good analogy of that be kind of similar to the way inflation works? If the federal government prints more money, you, you yourself still have the same amount of money, but that amount of money is worth less. It's not worthless, but it's it's worth less than it was before. That's correct. It's okay. exactly, it's almost exactly the same. Almost exactly the same. But you'll Got see it. it, Yeah, like you'll see it much clearer on in, in your startup investments because it'll, you, you know, you'll be able to see, okay, I own 2.3%. After next fundraising round, I own 1.7%. Because after each fundraising round, you're just going to own less and less of the company. Right, but you're hoping that the company is expanding debt. fast enough to to make up for that. In most cases, it will be, yeah, because fundraising rounds are usually a good event. Sometimes the company goes sideways. Uh, sometimes a company has a down round because they're just not doing well. But in most cases, it's a good event. So it means even though that you own less of the company, that lesser percentage of ownership is now worth more than your original investment. Got it. All right. Let's go halfway through the list here. Number four. This is something I think that I wouldn't have even thought of, but it makes perfect sense. And I can see where it's really important. Um, you say founder issues are common. Protect yourself against it. Uh, in yeah. parentheses, emotional stability is really important. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Now, founder issues, you have to think again. Think again about this is not a two-year commitment for a startup. This is, you need to be thinking of this as this is going to be an eight to 10 year thing. Now, Derek, how much have you changed in the last 10 years? It, I wouldn't even recognize myself from 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and most people wouldn't, right? Now it's really difficult to keep your head on straight and through, through the emotional roller coaster of a startup for 10 years. It's, it's, it's just so hard. Uh, unless the company's going straight up and paying you a ton of money and you're having a ton of fun. It's really difficult. Now, when you put two or three founders together and, you, you're, and you're asking them that you, you got to continue operating, you got to continue executing, you got to work well together for the next five, eight, 10 years, you know, it's really difficult. And so what, what happens in a lot of cases, not all, but in a lot of cases, you have a, a co-founder breakup. I've had it in my own companies I've started and I've seen it even more in companies that I've invested in, et cetera. So it happens all the time. What you want to look at um, in founders is you want to look at where they're at in life. You know, is you have one that's married, you have one that's going through a divorce, you have one that's that's single, and not not necessarily any three of those are the best place to be, right? <laughs> like you right. could be going through a divorce, and you could be like, all right, screw it, I'm like, I'm just heads down for five years and working. And you could be single, and you could be like, you know what, I'm I, I'm ready for the next step in my life. I want a family. Like I can't do the startup stuff. It's crazy. So but you, you should really take a look at where everyone that you're investing in is at, and try to you know try to give it a little bit of a gut check and say, do you, do you think this is going to work out? But most importantly is you want to make sure when you're investing that you protect against the founder split up. You don't want a scenario where you have two co-founders, they own 40% of the company each, the new investors own 20%. You invest, the company, um, the, the founders 
split up, break up, you have one, what's called debt equity. You have a co-founder and that owns 40% of the company and they are gone. It's a really, really bad situation for a company for a lot of different reasons. But what, you know, in most cases, you're able to resolve that by buying them out or just agreeing to some sensible thing. But you can protect against this through what's called redemption rights, which allows, you know, in, in the case that there is a, a separation or a breakup, you can uh, legally redeem that co-founder's shares back into the company. You might have to pay something for them, or there might just be a rule that says, hey, if after one year you, you're vested X, after two years you're vested to the next level, and after three years, maybe you're fully vested. Um, so you can have vesting schedules, but you want to make sure as an investor that there are some protections in there. And you should really just be asking whoever's you're investing in, the founder, uh, what happens in this scenario? What do, what protections are there against a founder issue, against you leaving, against the other co-founder leaving in three years? Are you vesting other redemption rights? Make sure that there's some paperwork in there to protect against that situation because it's it's a it's highly likely that if you invest in two or three different startups, that at least one of those startups is going to have a co-founder breakup. That really makes sense. Ten years is a super long time to trust anybody. It's you know, it's basically like a relationship that you need to keep together for ten years, and that's asking a lot. Um, that a lot. takes us halfway through your list. I think that's a, it's a good time to take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsor, and uh, we'll come back. We'll do the second half of Sam's list of the eight things he's learned from startup investing, and then he'll also give some advice for those newbies out there who are looking to invest in startups. So we'll be right back. This week's episode of Invest Like a Boss is sponsored by Fundrise. In 2021, a truly diversified portfolio needs more than just the traditional mix of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. It needs private real estate. Studies have shown that portfolios with an allocation to private real estate generally delivered a better risk-adjusted return with more annual income and lower volatility over the past two decades, thanks to its track record of consistent performance through multiple market cycles. With Fundrise, you get this level of powerful diversification and it's available to all investors and it's easy to use. So whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or maybe you prefer long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise makes investing in private real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. Like I said earlier, Johnny, Sam, and myself have all personally invested in Fundrise. In fact, I add money to my Fundrise account every single week and it's exciting because they send you these awesome updates about all the new projects that are coming up and I got to admit, I've actually driven to a few and checked them out and been like, all right, I own a little piece of that building. So if you want to see for yourself how Fundrise can help diversify your portfolio, all you got to do is head over to fundrise.com slash like a boss. You can join 150,000 investors who have built a better portfolio with private real estate. That's fundrise.com slash like a boss. F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash like a boss. All right, and we are back. Sam is talking about his eight things he's learned from startup investing. We did the first four. Now we're on to number five. Uh, let's kick it off. Cap tables become big issues for mediocre companies. What is that all about? 
Derek, do you know what a cap table is? I don't. That's why I was asking you. <laughs> <laughs> so a cap table is is sort of like a company registrar, like a shareholder register. So think of there's 10 people in this company and here's how much each of them own. That's kind of a cap table. Okay. Layman, layman, layman version of it. And so this kind of goes back to the last example that we we're talking about in number four, which was co-founder issues are are pretty common. And in that example, we're talking about, all right, if there's two co-founders and they each own 40% and then the investors own 20% and one co-founder leaves and there's they own 40% of the company, that is a major issue. That is a major, major issue for the company. And most companies won't be able to get over that issue. And the reason is that a new investor does not want to invest in that company unless that company is doing so incredibly well. Why? Because you have 40% of that company that is dead, dead, dead equity. It means there's no one behind that 40% that's trying to move the company forward, right? You want to free up that equity to be able to get it to people that are active in the company to incentivize those active people to to move the business forward. But why else is it deadly to the business? Because the other co-founders like, F this, I own the same as this person. I'm doing all the work. So they get disheartened and they don't want to work anymore, right? Until that situation's resolved. Uh, and then a lot of times you'll have the same thing even with maybe management. If the management has shares in the company and they're thinking, you know, Joe Schmo's only worked for 12 months. They own 40% of the company and I'm here working 12 hour days and I own, you know, 0.75% of, you know, right. less than 1, 1% of the company and I'm doing all the work. So both from the investor standpoint and the team morale, that can be a huge issue. So that that would be considered a cap table issue. Another so would, it be, another, would it be common for these startups to maybe maybe spread the equity around a little bit to make it more balanced, or is that something that just is out of the question? Yeah, but typically, what happens when starting a company? It's like one, two, or three people that are starting a company and say, "All right, uh, we're going to be equal partners." Okay, so you go in, you start, and like let's each put in. 20 grand to get the company started. And then we'll go out and raise a, a seed round. So what happens is like, okay, you're, you're 50% partners or you're all 30, 30, 30 type of partners. Right. Uh, and then when you get raising money, then investors own some, and then you might create an employee stock option pool to, uh, to give it out to, to active people in the business employees. Um, but inevitably when you, when you found a company, the founders are going to own big, big chunks. So that's, that's where you run into that issue that we just talked about. But there's also another issue that can happen. Uh, and this is mostly for mediocre companies because companies that are really good, really strong, it's less of an issue. But for a lot of companies, they'll take a lot of small investors. I right, will invest 10,000. Okay, you can invest 5,000. Okay, you know, we'll just give you 2% shares to be an advisor. And all of a sudden you have like 30 people that are small owners of the company and the company's still a very small company, right? Sure. So this gets messy because depending on the paperwork, it, you know, you might have to get votes for like to do stuff or written approvals from all these people if they have votes. Um, but also in a lot of times, it's just not good to have that many people uh, on the cap table. It's just not good to have that many people involved. Like it's, it's more people that you have to update. It's more people that email you and write you questions. It's potentially more people that have a vote that you might actually need to get a vote from. Like what if they're in, in New Zealand, like, you know, camping for, for three weeks or something, you can't reach them. And like, they have a vote that you actually need to get signed off on. So what happens is uh, you need to manage your cap table. You don't want to let too many small investors in just to have them in because 
you have someone and you have someone that's re- you're responsible to, and you also have someone that's potentially a liability when it comes to getting things done and executed. So um, is so there, again, is there a magic number to be at the cap table that, that you found uh, an average no, number of investors? Like, there really isn't, but, uh, but as the company gets bigger in size and does better, you can afford to have more. Sure. Some of these, you know, some of these companies invested in have probably close to a hundred investors, but if you were just getting started, you wouldn't want that many investors. It's just too much. So it's just kind of a rule of like the company grows, you can take on more and more and more, but when you're small, it's much better to, to have a few investors. Uh, but what happens and, and the reason that I was actually able to exit partially on two of the companies in the last few months was because new investor came in and said, all right, let's clean some of this up for good measure. Sure. And, and so, and that's what they did. They went out and bought a lot of the smaller shareholders out fully or partially uh, in order to clean that up. So it's, it, it can be dealt with, but it's just something that you want to actively manage. And when you're investing, you want to take a look at the cap table. You want to say, okay, like how many investors are there? Are there a ton of investors that just own, you know, very, very small amount. Um, and you want to make sure that whoever's uh, you want to make sure as much of the equity in the company is active. It means as much of the, com- the equity in the company is working on the business. You don't want uh, investors to own 70% and management to own 30%. And it's a really small company because the people that are working on the business just don't have enough incentive. Again, if it's if it's a huge company and we're talking multi-billion dollar valuation, you can get to a place where investors own the majority of the company. But as a small company, you want, you know, we're talking companies that are just starting when, when I'm looking at some of these, these companies I'm investing in at like seed levels. And I want at least 80% of the company to be active, 20% to be with the investors. And even at that size, the investors should be helping out as much as possible and not just be, not just be fully passive. Yeah, that really makes sense. Thanks for going over that. Uh, let's go to number six. Raising money is not the goal. Creating value is. Right. So raising money is is definitely not the goal, although most of the time it is a good event. But what what you always want to look at is, are you creating value? You know, if you raise a million dollars and you only increase your valuation by $1 million after you've deployed all that money, you've not created value, right? You're, you're par. You've, you've raised a million, you got your valuation from 10 million to 11 million, you've deployed all that money, it means you didn't create any value. Uh, you could also go backwards. You could deploy that money and your valuation could drop, means you lost value. But if you are at a $10 million valuation, you raise a million dollars, you invest and deploy all that money and you get your valuation up to 20 million, you created 9 million in value. You've doubled the valuation of the company off, off a million dollars. So you've created a lot of value, you've done a good job. So raising money is, is not, uh, it's very important, of course. A lot of these companies are going through 15, 20, 30 fundraising rounds now. It's insane. But you want to make sure that at every level, you're you're growing the valuation of the company, you're adding value. So you, there's lots of examples of like small companies where let's just say, uh, you know, it, we're not even talking like hundreds of millions of dollars, but a company could sell for $3 million and it could do very well for the investors if the investors raised uh, if the company raised a smaller amount of money and the valuation was low enough, you could sell the company for $3 million and people could do fantastically well off of that. Investors could do well. So it's all about creating value. And you want to make sure uh, when you're investing in these companies 
that the founder really understands this because it's very easy to get swooped away now by, well, let's go out and raise X, as much money as possible because it sounds good and it feels good. But there's endless stories of companies going out and raising tens of millions of dollars and not creating value, right? You raise 50, yeah. you know, if your company's worth 20 million, you got, you raise a $50 million round and then you, the company is only worth, you deploy all that money and the company is only worth 50 million. Well, you know, you didn't do anything pretty much. <laughs> Gonna lose. So, you're gonna take a massive haircut and so so you always want to make sure that every dollar that you raise and deploy you want to grow the value of 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 that you want to increase the valuation beyond that otherwise you're not doing anything yeah the so growth of the company should not value. be fueled just by the investment amount yeah and the goal should not just be to get to the next fundraising amount it should always be about making sure that every dollar that's deployed you're you're growing that dollar in value for the company Totally makes sense. Number seven, speaking of value, uh, Sam says, valuation isn't important necessarily. What is more important is your entry point and your exit point. Can you explain that? Absolutely. And this was this was a, um, one that we had on, let's see. Uh, oh God, what is his name? See, this is my jet lag starting. To <laughs> this, is, this is a 13-hour. No, this is 21 hours of flying with no sleep. Um, Anyways, you can come back. You can invest in a company at any level and, and make money. I used to get really fixated on, oh, I, I have to find companies whose valuation are less than two million dollars. They're just getting started, and that's my sweet spot. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't mean that you can't invest in a, a company at a hundred million dollar valuation and make just as much money. Uh, so, good example: guy invested in Slack at a billion dollar valuation. Slack's now worth 50 billion, right? So sure. it's the same as investing in a company at a million dollar valuation and that company going to 50 million. So don't get too sidetracked by the valuation of the company. Um, still to this day, I get people that'll write me like, hey, my buddy's raising money, valuation's uh, 30 million. And immediately like that sense in me is like, oh, the valuation's too high. Like I missed I missed, it, missed out early on. But that, it, it, it means really nothing. It, it just means what's the entry point and what's the exit point. If I'm investing at 30 million valuation, what's the upside of the company? Do I think the company can grow 10 times? Do I think it can grow it a hundred times? Or is it is it pretty pretty much maxed out in terms of valuation? Maybe it can get from 30 million to 50 million. So you always want to be thinking what's how big is the opportunity? Not necessarily how big is the valuation. Don't be scared by the valuation and thinking that if I invest $50,000 at a 30 million valuation, I'm going to own peanuts or I'm going to own less than 1%. But it doesn't matter. It, it, that, that, that actually doesn't even matter at all. It just what's your entry point? What's your exit point? And that'll tell you how much money you can make. And the valuation does not necessarily matter. Although it is really fun to get in early because the upside is just, you know, theoretically it's larger. I think that makes sense. Uh, it's a good point because if you invested in, let's say, Apple in 2008 when they brought the iPhone out, it was worth less than $100 billion. You know, you fast forward 12 years, it's a $2 trillion company. So, you know, something like that was already a multi billion dollar company. But if you believe in the idea and what it can, you know, grow to, there's really no limit. You can definitely take this example all the way to the public markets like you just did. And the one most recent, would be Tesla, where right. Tesla was a $25 billion company. And now it's what, $700 billion in just like a year. Now, 
if someone came to you and was like, Hey, I have this startup, <laughs> I have this, my friend's got a business that's worth 25 billion. They're about to raise money. You'd be like, are you crazy? Like I'm not investing 50,000 valuations, 25 billion, but actually it, it doesn't matter. It's like investing 50,000 in Tesla a year ago when the valuation was 25 billion. And if you invested 50,000, then, you know, it would have been, what's it worth now? Almost a million bucks or something. Right. So, yeah. Uh, so that's all you got to think about. That's all you got to think about. But the smaller the valuation, now, if you invested in Tesla when it was first raising money back in like 2000, whatever, six or something, and you invested in them when they're like a $20 million company, well, <laughs> that math I can't sitting, do right now, but I can tell you it's sitting, big. <laughs> you're sitting real pretty. You're sitting real pretty. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's why a good getting point. in early I mean, is fun. That's why getting in early is fun. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a fun. I mean, it is a gamble to some point, but it's it's also fun to see that this thing could go a hundred times, a hundred x, or it could you break even. It, you never know. But there's there's plenty of examples of stories out there where the, you know these companies have become multi billion dollar companies from essentially nothing. Yeah. And it, well, think about this example, Derek, which has more upside, a brewery or a travel app? Uh, potentially, I guess, a travel app. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know because I, I mean, everyone's going to drink no matter what, but everyone's going to travel as well. But if you're talking an app, that's something more of a digital asset. I, I guess I would agree that the, the digital asset's going to grow faster or have yeah. more potential. So I, I think most people would agree, right? But then if you step back and look at it and say, okay, a brewery, yeah, if you think about a brewery in a traditional sense, you can have like maybe one facility, you're going to serve burgers and brew, like maybe the valuation of that brewery could go like, I don't know, million, $2 million, right? But think about some of the, the, the craft breweries that we've seen sold already for like more than a billion dollars. And then think if you can expand your brewery operation into a beverage company and you can become a, just a, a big conglomerate beverage company. Some of the public beverage companies that own spirits, um, they own wine labels now, they own, of course, beer. I mean, we're talking tens of billions of dollars in terms of valuation. So uh, so, so it just, it really depends on, again, like entry point, and exit point, and like how hungry, what's the mo what's the motivation of the founders? Like how aggressive do they want to be? They want to just build a single tap room or do they want to turn it into the largest, you know, beverage company in Asia Pacific? Uh, and same, same with travel app, like a travel app could potentially, you know, it could be potentially be a hundred billion dollar business, or it could be some shitty little thing that just uh, you use in like your local community and like there's, there's no upside. So what's the entry point? What's the exit point? And don't worry about valuation too much. Got it. Uh, that brings us to your last lesson learned in startups. Obviously not the only lesson, but these were Sam's top eight. Number eight, nothing is a sure thing until the money is back in your bank account. It's all about the Benjamins, Derek. I agree. The Benjamins in the bank because nothing is sure until that money's in the bank. Seen tons of deals fall through last minute. My buddy had a business that was about to sell for $240 million. It came down to the day of signing. All the due diligence had been done. The papers were out for signing. By midnight that night, there was crickets. Nothing was signed. The next day, the company said they got cold feet. They're backing out. That company is now worth nothing. And that is the difference of that guy being fantastically rich and all the investors being fantastically wealthy to, uh, to everybody losing. And that's just the name of the game until the money, the docs are signed and the money is in your bank. Don't count on anything. You see your 
your shareholding, uh, your shares appreciate in value 50 times, a hundred times, don't go out and mortgage your house and start spending money because <laughs> there's no guarantee that these things are going to be able to exit and you're going to have liquidity on your shares. So it's exciting to, to watch things grow and appreciate, but if anyone just witnessed like, you know, through COVID, some companies flourished, but other companies got rocked and, and knocked out of business. So luck plays a big role, but even good companies fail. Uh, so you just can't count anything until the money's in the bank. Not even like, not even when papers are out for signing, don't count it. Just when money's in the bank. And even then you still have to worry a little bit about litigation. So um so what kind of what kind of timeline are we talking here? I'm I'm trying to remember. We did an episode a few a uh, few episodes back with the the book Exit Rich. You had mentioned that you know you've done you've done really large exits in your um, SkySig, you know, to to some, some smaller exits recently. And you said the smaller companies were actually harder to close the deal than these larger companies, you know, that have this huge valuation. Mm -hmm. uh, what what kind of timeline can you expect from the first initial offer to buy out the company? to actually closing. And then like you just said, with litigation, how, how much longer should you expect to maybe just put that money in the bank and not do anything with it for a while until you're, you know, you're in the clear, what's the timeline on this stuff? Um, I, think, I, I think typical merger and acquisition processes take kind of six to 12 months. And you might, you might not get an offer, like a detailed official offer until late into the process. And a lot of times you'll get kind of a ballpark idea. Like, you know, we're interested in buying you based on what we know. Like we think, you know, between X and Y range. Um, but it, you, you might get, you might get several months into it before you might get interest early on says, Hey, we're really intent in, in this space. We think your business is great. Like we'd love to, we know you guys, we'd love to kick off due diligence. If you guys be interested in getting type of thing but you might not get a, a final a, a firm offer that you're going to accept for many many months into this process um and then after afterwards you know due diligence process is usually uh, in my experience but, but at least the last two companies we sold were to public companies it's long and exhausting man it's really really heavy um so i would say six to 12 months in, in my experience and then money's in the bank. Usually what will happen in, in a, a deal is they'll withhold money against claims and warranties and stuff. And they could withhold money for three months. They could withhold money for a year. They could withhold money for four years. Um, so usually there'll be a, some amount that's withheld. And even, uh, even there, you have to still be careful because you can get into litigation if after the deal closes and money's been transferred, if they find something that they think was wrong with like your accounting methods, et cetera, they could come back, back to you for some of the money that they paid. So you just got to be smart with it. You know, uh, you certainly don't want to go out and, and spend it all right away, but, um, but making some smart investments isn't a bad idea because, you know, that money can be safe. So you just got to be smart with it, get good advisors. And if anyone's owned a company for, you know, for multiple millions of dollars, good chance you're going to have advisors involved and you'll probably be getting this advice from them as well. So probably sticking to some more conservative, uh, more liquid investments uh, initially after the cash. Yeah. James, James Alcher actually did this uh, where he, he had made like $15 million and he went and just like blew it. <laughs> he spent it on like housing and like a nice place in San Francisco, but he just blew like a lot of it on stupid stuff. Now he didn't actually get sued, but he ended up just losing all of his money. And I think he invested some of it in like a dot com bubble and things like that. 
And so his advice is like, after you sell a company, just do nothing for a year. Just like leave the money in the bank do nothing for a year. Don't even spend anything. So that would be taking a very conservative route, but, um, you know what? Probably I bet he had a good time spending that though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta say, had a fun time spending it. <laughs> All right. I love this list and you're actually getting me interested in checking out some startups. So let's say there's other, there's obviously, I would assume a lot of other people in the same boat as me that hasn't invested directly in any startups, but is maybe nervous about getting into it and unsure. I think that that list you just mentioned definitely helps uh, kind of clear up some of the questions that I know I had. What are, uh, let's end the episode with advice that you would suggest to investors just starting off in their first startup. What are you looking for in that first investment in a startup? So if, if, if you're getting into your first one and let's just say that it's not crowdfunding because crowdfunding, I would say it's just, it's a different approach. If you're going to invest $250 into something through a crowdfunding platform, you just find something that looks interesting and do as much due diligence as you want. But I would probably just make sure that it's, it's something that you're interested in and you want to follow. But if you're doing it more traditionally and like the check size is bigger, let's say you're investing a minimum of, of 25,000, 50,000. And this is, you know, maybe it's, well, first off, don't, this would be the first point. Don't invest unless you're prepared to lose the money because there's a good chance that you're going to lose it. So don't, you know, make sure that that money that you're investing is not your saving, your last bit of savings for a rainy day. Make sure that you have plenty of other money and that this is sort of play money. Is there, is there a, maybe a, a rule to a, a percentage of your total worth that, you know, you would allow this to go to? Uh, I mean, my, mine's 10% right now. Um, okay. Let's say you had half a million dollars. Would I recommend investing 50,000 in a startup? Probably, you know, okay. if, but you would have to have a good feeling for it. For instance, if it was if it was a founder that that you knew really well and you loved the idea and uh, maybe you thought you could add value to it, then yeah, I think so because investing in startups is is actually really rather fun. It's it's emotional and it's there's a good chance you're going to lose money, but there's also something that's pretty magical and interesting about having a lottery ticket in your pocket. That's more than just a lottery ticket. Like there is a good chance that you could make a ten or fifty x or a hundred x return on it, right? But if it does, if it does so go to zero, that, though, you're also not crushed yeah, yeah, at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet fifty percent on it. But if you had a really good feeling about it, and there's some some really great elements to the investment, I think investing, you know, ten percent, take taking a shot at ten percent, um, is probably an okay place to start. But like I said, rule number one, or the advice I'll give to just don't invest it unless you're willing to lose it, because you also don't want to get too emotionally tied to it and think things aren't working well. And then you're pissed off at your founder friend and stuff like that. So just, yeah. Make yeah. Sure and and what about, and, and the fact that, you know, you suggest, you know, getting a founder or, or, you know, a team in place that you really believe in and trust. Um, would you would you say it's kind of like the old adage of don't lend money to friends? Um, if this is someone that you personally know and had a, a you know of a, a friendship with prior to this business, would you suggest to maybe avoid that because you know the issues that can come up? No, I don't think so. I think it's different lending lending a friend money so they can go buy a car or like pay off a debt. I think is is totally different. You know, investing in a in a friend who is a competent, hardworking. Uh, reliable person, you're, you're taking a risk with them. You're on a, you're on a train with them and you're 
you're there to, to hopefully make money with them. But if you lose, you know, it's good. He's probably losing as well. So yes, like you could invest in a friend and they could just totally have a change of, of heart and not want to work hard on it. And that would definitely fray your friendship. Right. Um, but if he's, you know, if he's hardworking or she is hardworking and, and reliable and honest, they're probably not going to do that anyways. They're probably going to stick it out and put in their best effort. So no, I, I, I think he, in fact, like a lot of my investments are in people that I consider very, very good friends. And if the company fails, it's not going to, it's not going to damage our friendship at all. If they did something unethical, it would, but then they're not a good friend anyway. So there you go. Sure. That makes sense. So, you know, you're kind of in this together. Um, you had mentioned, you know, prepare to prepared to add more capital than your initial investment. Is there kind of, I know every company is a little different, but let's say, is it a, is it a year after your initial investment? Is it two years? What have, what have you kind of seen with your startups uh, to, yeah, where think, that second round comes in? For, I think most companies will raise, they're always raising at least enough money for 12 months, I would say. I think if you're okay. raising money for six months, it's a pretty unique situation. It's like, hey guys, like we were doing fine, then COVID hit, like we need to extend runway six months. But if you're going out and raising like an initial round or a follow-up round, like you're really usually raising at least 12 months, which would still be pretty light. Um, I think most companies are trying to raise like 20, 18 to 18 to 32 months worth of runway. Um, so unless some extraordinary but, situation like COVID happens, should you maybe be leery if they're asking for money from you again in less than a year's time? Well, you want to keep you want to keep track on how they're doing. Like, are they saying that they're going to keep to this budget and then they're spending more? Or like, did did a situation come up? And the, and it's not always a bad thing, right? It could be a good thing. You say, hey, we have a, we have the ability to grow by this, or we have the ability to acquire this company, or there's a merger opportunity and we just need, you know, X amount to, to pull it off and to contribute. So there's all different types of situations that could come up, but I would just say, whatever you're going to invest, especially if you're one of the early investors, like if there's a hundred investors, this might not necessarily be as, as relevant, but if you're one of the first half dozen investors in the company, um, I would be prepared to put in at least two or three times your original investment into that company as, as follow-on capital. A, possibly as just survival money for the company to get through and get over a hump, or B, just because the company is doing well and you want to you want participate, you want to be in a pos position to participate, not on. Cool, sounds good. Um, one thing that's really important that I know you've brought up before: using an attorney. What are you, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And what should what should you look for in an attorney to go over this uh, investment paperwork? Yeah. I mean, this is boring stuff, but super important, right? You guys got to have an attorney look it over because there's all different types of crazy investment stuff going on now. Like the, the different types of uh, equity and note investing, it's like changing all the time. So you want to have an attorney look it over. Usually the whoever's doing the investment, uh, putting the investment together, uh, they'll have a corporate attorney that's preparing the docs. So at a very minimum, you could just speak with, ask to speak with their corporate attorney and ask questions, have them explain it. But, um, you know, if you're investing 50 grand, it makes sense to pay an attorney 500, a $1, to look over documents and have a dialogue going back and forth with, um, with the other side, just make sure everything's clear and making sure that you understand what you're investing in because it can get very complicated. So, um, leave that one pretty short. It's boring, but make sure you have an attorney look over everything and make sure you understand what you're investing in. Yeah. I think that's really smart to get your own personal attorney to look that over. And you know, it, it's not, it's not that much when you're, when you're investing 50,000 to, to put a, an extra one to 2% into that investment to have an attorney look it over. I think totally right. makes sense. 
yeah. so how, what other ways, you know, besides giving a company, you know, your money as an investor, can you add value to that company? Well, you're not always going to be able to, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> I'm useless. I, do think, <laughs> yes, I just want to be valuable. Okay. Uh, you also don't want to be like poking around and sticking your nose and like just, just wasting people's time. But I do think sure. that all of us have something unique about us, something that, that we're smart with, something we probably spent 10,000 hours on and something we can help with. And a lot of these companies, you know, you're, you're getting out the gate. You're you got the blinders on. You're just working really hard. Uh, I think it's important to when, when you're picking investments to also think about what you might be able to add to that investment. Are you a lawyer? Are you an attorney? Do you have a good sales background? Uh, do you have technical technical background? Do you work um, you know in an agency running Facebook and, and Google ads? If if there's something that you're quite good at you know, you might be able to identify an opportunity to help that company because it's great when these companies are getting started to be able to go in and be like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to make an investment. I'm also happy to help out a few hours each week on X, you know, take that, take that burden off of you. So I think it's really fun to invest in these companies, but I think it's even more fun if you can add just a little bit of value and be a little bit more part of the story. And that'll also grow your bond and relationship with the founders and the management team. And it just, it makes any success that much sweeter. Yeah. You know, I mean, if Black Ops is taking on investors, I'm pretty good at drinking beer. And I think that's important. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll only cost you like what? probably six grand to fly over there and, uh, and drink right. the beers, but hey, yeah, I can, I can fly great. coach. I, I can save a little bit. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is awesome advice, Sam. Um, I think what we're going to do is I'm going to put up, uh, in Patreon, we'll do some additional Q and a, if you're, if you're an iLab Patreon member, uh, we'll put the question in there to what questions you have for Sam, uh, in startups. He's more than happy to help. I'm sure answer those questions and you guys can chime in on anything else you have related to startups. But with that, I think this is an awesome start to anybody looking to make one of these investments. Thank you for the, all this, Sam. Yeah, Derek. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it. And if anyone has questions that it's in the Patreon group about the portfolio or, or specifics about any of the, the nine investments that I'm in, happy to answer it. And um, would also be really keen just to hear everyone else's uh, startup investments if they've done them through crowdfunding platforms. And because and, I, I do think this is going to be, we, we see, we're seeing, how much money can be made in these companies, right? Going public. It's, it's crazy. Just this year with like DoorDash and Airbnb and uh, Coinbase just went public and stuff. So uh, I've never been in a company that's gone, that's listed before. That would be really, really exciting. Um, so let us know what you guys are doing out there. I think it's, a, it's a awesome, obviously an awesome time to be an investor of all categories, but man, getting in early and watching these companies grow, be able to look at the, the potential to rip, you know, 200, 500,000 times returns is, it's a lottery ticket. It's fun. So good luck to everybody out there and uh, just be careful when you're playing with fire. Good advice. Um, <laughs> all right, go get your lottery ticket. And Sam, you go get some sleep. You just were on a jet all night, but I appreciate your time. You're very lucid, I thought, for this. So <laughs> I'm fading fast. I'm ready all to right. go. <laughs> all right, we'll see you guys next week on Invest Like a Boss. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.